Within the last month or so, we finally completed our study through the book Beyond Creation Science. We, those of us who gathered on Wednesday nights, took our time going through such a resource, and I believe it is safe to say that we as a study group had quite a few healthy conversations and learned quite a bit. Beyond Creation Science is one of those books that you can read again and again, and each time come out learning more than you did the previous time. The value of studying through it with a group is priceless. A special and sincere thank you to those of you who studied with us. I'd like to change the focus of what we have been usually reading through and focusing in on during our Sunday morning worship. Instead of going through 1 Samuel to establish what I have been referring to as Kingdom Foundations, this morning I'd like to highlight Covenant Creation, the view we get from the book Beyond Creation Science as a Kingdom Foundation. Beyond Creation Science was written and designed to challenge those who adhere to the preterist view of Bible prophecy, namely because it is preterists who seemingly have a healthy understanding of the type of literature and language we find in the scriptures, and therefore it is preterists who should be able to clearly see how the bookends of the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, uh, are speaking about covenant realities, not planetary ones. Such a view is what we refer to as the covenant creation view. Those who hold to covenant creation, or CC, understand that, quote, what Genesis does, Revelation undoes, end quote. Unfortunately, much of the discussion about Genesis creation has been led by a scientific literal approach. Much of this focusing in on the book of Genesis and uh, offering up details in regards to evolution and the like, rather than the biblical literal approach. The biblical literal approach is more about asking what this ancient writing might have meant to its original audience, what we often refer to as audience relevance. And also this approach allows the terms and the phrases to be interpreted by the Bible itself, scripture interpreting scripture. So we wanna shake our head no at the scientific literal approach to the book of Genesis and instead develop a biblical literal approach. Now let me be clear, many who are not preterists have come to see the truth and the value of understanding the details of Genesis as pertaining to covenantal details. Back in 2015, I participated in a public discussion with Robert Iannicelli from Faith on Fire, who admitted that while he didn't feel convinced and compelled regarding my views of full preterism, he did humbly admit that my views on Genesis creation challenged him and over the course of many discussions changed his views. You can go ahead and watch that a presentation with myself and Robert Iannicelli on YouTube. Just put in Michael, Mike, Michael Miano and Robert Iannicelli. Last name could be spelt I-A-N-U-C-C-I-L-L-I. Glory to God when a man is humble enough to change his perspective in line with the scriptures. Amen. Also, 19th century pastor and Bible teacher who was not a full preterist, Milton Terry, wrote this, quote, The result of our study thus far 
is the conviction that in these opening chapters of Genesis, we are not to look for historic narrative, nor contributions to natural science, but to recognize a symbolic apocalypse of God's relation to the world and man. Now, I wouldn't agree completely with Milton Terry, as I do believe that we can arrive at both. We can understand a narrative history beginning with Adam as the people of Israel, and we can also understand the story in an apocalyptic, prophetic, covenantal fashion. Let it also be known that those of us who adhere to covenant creation, even the very authors of Beyond Creation Science, have admitted, quote, that much more work needs to be done to flesh out additional implications of this covenant view of creation. Again, no know-it-alls here. This is, you know, uh, an honest, sincere examination and study through what we find in the scriptures. Not seeking to be know-it-alls or to be uh, high-minded. The basic distinction of the covenant creation view is that much of the Bible has a covenant context to it. What I mean by covenant context is that rather than the details applying universally to all the people on the planet, though the language may seem to be that way from a cursory read, the details are better understood in regards to God's covenant people, those to whom God was in relationship with and thus dealing with. So rather than Adam and Eve being the original ancestors of everyone on planet Earth, they are the beginning of the covenant people. Rather than the flood of Noah's day to be about the water engulfing the entire planet, the story is focused in on the covenant people. And yes, rather than the end times being about the end of the physical planet, we note that they are about, of the, about the end of a covenant. Much of what we read in the Bible, though eternally and globally significant, took place locally and covenantally. From a cursory reading of scripture, which unfortunately is all most Christians have today, it is easy to see why the seemingly popular view of Genesis creation, of the flood of Noah's day, or even the end times, has been given global, global emphasis. However, when we begin to scrutinize the text, demanding a consistent narrative, or even just trying to make sense of some of the details that we're reading in the Bible, we find that in-depth study, rightly dividing the scriptures, is of utmost importance and value. I could go in all sorts of directions with this point. However, I want to focus in on how certain words we read or hear might initially seem universal or global, but when thought through and studied, they simply are not. For example, the Hebrew and the Greek words for earth or world. In the Hebrew, the word often translated earth is the word arets. So when we read that the people scattered all over the earth or that the waters spread all over the earth, the word being used is arets. This has led many to assume this is speaking globally and the average Bible reader does not realize that this posits a problem. However, if you read Genesis chapter 12 verse 1, the text tells us that the Lord told Abram to leave his country and to go to the land that he will show him. In the Hebrew, the text would be God telling Abram to leave his arets, to go to the arets he will show him. No one, except maybe the Mormons, 
believe the text is speaking about Abram going to another planet. But rather, we see Abram leaving his land and going to another land, which the English Bible translators recognized. So why do the English translators take the liberty to choose when the text says country, or when the text should say land, or when the text should say earth? Or of more importance, are we to believe that the English translators don't have bias interpretations that might need to be challenged? Interestingly enough, quote from Beyond Creation Science, Aretz is translated as land in the Old Testament over a thousand times. And the majority of usage of Aretz in the Old Testament refers to a local region of land. So, what if the text should read that the entire country or land was flooded by water in the days of Noah and should give us the picture of a region of land being flooded rather than the entire planet Earth. That would sure change things a bit, wouldn't it? Let's consider the Greek in the New Testament. The Greek word often translated Earth or world in the New Testament is gi. Gi is the Greek equivalent to the Hebrew word aretz. Just as I challenged that the flood of Noah's day was to be understood as a regional flood, what if I also argue that the verses in the New Testament say that, that say the gospel will go out to the whole world or that the whole world will see Jesus when he comes are also speaking about a certain region rather than a whole planet. And obviously that leads in on a certain region at a certain time. These are the things that are revealed when we do the necessary contextual reading and word studies. You might think, you might not think that these details are all that important. However, I want to tell you that due to many failing to see the covenantal context of the details and terms found in the scriptures, a host of biblical doctrines have been misunderstood. Dare I say the very goal of the biblical narrative has been subverted. For example, so many take the groaning creation of Romans chapter 8 to be speaking about the planet groaning and in need of change, rather than the covenant creation, the old covenant people groaning under law, sin, and death. Rather than an anthropocentric or man-centered view of the curse, many have foisted the curse upon the planet Earth. Praise God that the book Beyond Creation Science challenges such notions. Demonstrating that the early chapters of Genesis are not about the planet, the authors of Beyond Creation Science assert, quote, if our physical world existed for a long time before the fall of Adam and was not radically affected by his sin, then it stands to reason that Christ's redemption would not entail a radically changed planet, end quote. Consider the contradiction of saying how beautiful the planet is, and how it demonstrates a divine creator, yet saying that it was affected by the curse. In Beyond Creation Science, they write, quote, How can creation be a symbol of God today if the curse caused a manifest change in the physical universe? Would not a great change alter the creational symbols and make them false? If the, cre if the creation changed as a result of the fall, then we are no longer viewing God's creation, end quote. Beyond Creation Science offers great insights on how we might see these things differently, dare I say, 
more consistently. Some might ask, what about the presence of biological death in our world? Beyond Creation Science highlights that the operation of our world does not indicate the need for some ultimate physical conclusion where biological death no longer exists if the physical world did not change as a result of the curse of Adam. We need to check our presuppositions here, our assumptions when we're approaching the biblical text. Furthermore, if biblical, I'm sorry, if biological death is the nature of God's curse on Adam, then every man pays the penalty for his own sin when he dies. Do all men pay the penalty for their own sin when they die? Furthermore, what about Christians when they die? If the answer, uh, did Jesus pay the entire penalty for the sins of his people? If the answer is yes, which hopefully it is, then biological death cannot be any part of the original penalty for sin because Christians still experience biological death. Matter of fact, scripture reveals that beautiful in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. Yet we're calling that a curse. Something strange here. However, the fall of man has nothing to do with biological death that we witness in our world. Biological death is built into the creative order from the beginning. Death is a part of life. Death is a part of life and serves as a divine purpose. When Adam and Eve sinned, they lost covenant life, union and communion with God. Therefore, life is good for the believer because Jesus says, I come that they may have life and have it to the full. John 10.10 10. Notice that Jesus is not talking about physical life because everyone lived physically before Jesus Christ came. He's talking about the same life that Adam lost in the garden. Covenant life and friendship and communion with God. That's the story of the Bible. God starts with the beginning people, a beginning of a covenant with Adam. That's why you can say in the book of Hosea, like Adam, they have violated the covenant. So God started a covenant with Adam. Adam violated that covenant. That violation of the covenant came to be the identity of ancient Israel. Again, we read this all throughout the law and the prophets. And then what we see happening in Genesis, as we move into the New Testament, and the New Testament is undoing that curse ultimately finding us at the point of Revelation chapters 21 through 22, where the curse has been done away with. Why? Because the old order has passed away. What was the old order? The old covenant. Let's read Psalm chapter 8. Beautiful text here. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth, who have displayed your splendor above the heavens. From the mouth of infants and nursing babes, you have established strength because of your adversaries to make the enemy and the revengeful cease. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon, the stars, which you have ordained, what is man that you take thought of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than God and you crown him with glory and majesty. You make him rule over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and all the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes through the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. 
One thing I want to make mention of is we definitely see the messianic theme. Matter of fact, I believe it's in the book of Hebrews. The writer of Hebrews picks up on what this psalm is pointing to. Again, Hebrews talking about covenantal transition, right, from the old to the new. We see in Hebrews chapter 8 particularly where the writer says that the old was growing old, was ready to vanish away, and the new was coming in. So... We see very clearly here, this is all very covenantal. Another issue with modern interpretations is the failure to understand apocalyptic language, such as when God uses the phrase heaven and earth, to talk about his people. We see this particularly, well, we see it all throughout scripture, but one place that I like to make mention of is in Deuteronomy chapters 31 through 32. Or when we misunderstand celestial objects such as the sun turning black, the moon turning into blood, the stars falling from the sky as the end of the physical planet rather than the powerful language speaking about wars between nations. I imagine most when they read Psalm chapter 8 verses 3 through 4 particularly, they think of how majestic the planet is and how wild it is that God chooses us and deals with us. Well, that's not entirely wrong. However, as many of you already know, I recently started reading through large portions of the Bible in line with the B90X challenge, the Bible in 90 days. As I have journeyed through almost the first five books of the Bible, little emphasis, if any, is put on the design of the solar system. Almost all of the focus is on how God chose a specific group of people to work through, to defend, to lead, to be with. As I said on a podcast earlier in the month, it is not staring at the sky or learning of the solar system that necessarily puts me in awe of God's choosing me, but rather the story of his people, the patience God has had with his people, the constant disappointment and lack of trust man brings to the sovereign God, yet he again and again provides mercy, grace, and love to his people. That puts me in awe, and that's the emphasis of the biblical narrative. Whether you have read and studied through Beyond Creation Science or not, I trust I have given you a good amount of things to think about this morning. The implications of these details are immense. As Beyond Creation Science notes, quote, the recognition that our earth has been here for millions of years and will be here for millions of years will prompt Christians to think deeply about the future. This will change ways that Christians live out their own faith. Christians will inevitably become more future-oriented and think and plan and work for this long future rather than dwelling slothfully in the shadow of a supposed imminent end of history. And yes, our critics are immense. However, again quoting Beyond Creation Science, progress is hard work and tends to be messy. Progress has always been the reward for those who attempted something new, sometimes at great personal cost. I'd like to close out this morning's message by highlighting that I have put together a PDF study guide to go along with the book Beyond Creation Science. You can find it on my blog site at mianogonewild.wordpress.com and most of you here at the Blue Point Bible Church have received that in an email. Also, what I'd like to do in conclusion is to read the thoughts, a little letter of encouragement from one of the authors of Beyond Creation Science, Dr. Jeff Vaughn, and 
encourage each of us in thanking each of you for your diligence. Dear diligent Bible student, I'm honored that there are many of you who are wishing to study the question, what is Genesis actually saying? Rather than the more common question, how does Genesis match science? At the time Tim Martin and I started writing this book, we had both mostly concluded that Genesis had nothing to do with physical origins. I was certain I would never know what Genesis 1 was really saying. Two years later, we had an inkling, which we could prove from Scripture. Genesis 1 was the beginning of God's old covenant and his relationship with his first people, Adam. During this study, you have learned that lesson and have added to it, helping to fill in the details that Tim and I had never imagined. I'm grateful for the work you've put in and how your learning has and will continue to impact my own. Blessings. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Mighty, heavenly, majestic, amazing God. As we look at this plan of redemption, Lord, that you have graced the pages of Scripture with, as we enter into Genesis, Lord, and we learn about the ancient origins of the curse and how man has fallen into depravity, Lord, by leaning on his own understanding. We thank you, Lord, that the solution is found toward the end of the, Bib the Bible, Lord, the biblical narrative, where it all draws to a conclusion. It comes to a head, Lord, focusing in on you and you alone. You are our salvation. You have removed the curse. You have removed sickness. You have removed death. You have brought us into joy rather than mourning, Lord. We thank you, Lord, for the men and women that have studied diligently to unearth your truths, Lord, to correct, to reform your truths, Lord, so that we might better understand, so that we might better replicate your truth to a world that so desperately needs it. We thank you for life, Lord, and life more abundantly. We thank you for beyond creation science and the wisdom and the, the time and the diligence and the effort that was taken, Lord, to make this a study resource for us. And Lord, of course, I thank you for the minds and hearts that came together to study this here at the Blue Point Bible Church, those that joined us online as well. I thank you for that, Lord. And I pray that we would see the increase in our own understanding as well as in how we explain these truths to others. How we walk worthy, Lord, of what the Apostle Peter told us to always have an answer for those that ask of us the reasons of our hope. May we endeavor to be more contextual in our study, more consistent in our understanding of the biblical story, Lord, so that you would receive all the glory and that the world may know. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.